0: My name is Jeff Lerner, and I interview elite performers from a wide range of disciplines: entrepreneurs, athletes, celebrities, scientists, artists, and more. This is Unlock Your Potential. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Unlock Your Potential. So excited to be back with you, having amazing conversations with amazing human beings. Today we are here for round two with a superlative gentleman himself, Mister Doctor, Mister Doctor John D. Martini. Uh, no, in all seriousness, so this is uh, the second time John's been a guest on the show, had a really incredible conversation the first go-round, got a lot of great feedback, which was great because I had already told him that I wanted to have him back on the show, but then I got a lot of great feedback that validated that notion. So uh, here he is many months in the making. Dr. Demartini, welcome back to Unlock Your Potential.
1: Thank you for having me back.
0: I'm looking forward to uh, no- it. Normally, I would give a, a big a big um, a biographical introduction but what I'm going to say to the audience is, um, rather than me intro Dr. Martini, I've already done a hell of an intro with Dr. Martini that is an hour, three minutes, and 14 seconds long, and it is episode number something, hundred and something. But it's called Find Your Authentic Self, The Ultimate Guide to Self-Discovery with Dr. John Martini, and I strongly encourage everyone to go watch that episode uh, as a primer to or follow-up to this episode, either one. Um, it was a great conversation that I'm excited to continue. So Dr. Demartini, um, the first observation I have is that the backdrop, the curtain behind you has not changed. So that means that you are still on your ship, which for anyone that didn't hear that previous episode, uh, Dr. Demartini spends the better time uh, of, his, or th- of his life on a ship. And if I remember from our previous conversation, you said that since you were 24 years old, You've basically only done four things, which is re- uh, research, write, teach, and travel, and that everything else, all the way down to like cooking meals and doing laundry and whatnot, you've delegated. And so you live this uh, sort of wonderfully polymathic, almost utopian existence on your ship. And I don't know, b- bring us all up to speed. Am I, am I capturing it correctly? And, and is that in fact what you're still doing?
1: Yeah, I, I'm pretty well useless except for those those few things. <laughs> I, I I love learning, I love sharing, I love traveling, and so I do delegate everything else away. So I, I try not to... I, I learned many, many years ago that every human being has a set of priorities, a set of values, a hierarchy of values that they live their life by, and each perception, decision, and action they take is based on it. And if you don't fill your day with the very highest priority, most meaningful, most inspiring, most intrinsically driving activities, you'll devalue yourself and you'll less the probability of attracting your what's innermost in your thoughts as is, is your dream. So I delegate everything else. I don't cook and drive and do any of those other things. I have people specializing and that love doing that around me to take care of things. And I just teach, research, and write. And this is the fifth presentation. I have another one at midnight tonight. So I just do them pretty well most of the time.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. So you 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 fill her up and then release it to the world. You fill it up with knowledge and information and insight and you, you know good. I, I I forget the the stat, but it's I know for authors at least they recommend at least a two to one ratio of input to output. You're you're probably even higher than that
1: yeah definitely but I do I there's there's nothing I love more than learning and and anything that inspires me that I've learned I love sharing and so well, I and, do that
0: and I don't think it's it's purely a, a semantic statement I think it's a it's a profound reality that learning and teaching are two very real sides of the same coin which I will share with you uh, anecdotally my last name learner l e r n e r is actually the y- the y is a Yiddish word that interestingly and to our point does not actually mean learner. It means teacher, but learner teacher. Uh, it's the Yiddish word for teacher or scholar. Um, man, okay, so yes, we we did uh, talk extensively last time about values. um, I remember after our last interview, I went and and looked more deeply into the uh philosophical subdiscipline of axiology, which is in fact the focused study of human values. And have actually done a, a decent amount of work on that, on that subject since. But m- maybe, and, and I will say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sort of be insistent with the audience that rather than rehash much of Dr. Demartini's Martini's biography, which is super fascinating and interesting and really you know creates the context for all the the wonderfully deep and interesting things that that he talks about and that I hope to keep up with here uh, I, you really should go listen to that previous episode though i mean you know dropout surfer bum uh tur- you know d- grub dyslexic overcame cognitive challenges and ultimately emerged as kind of like this you know intellectual butterfly um who's now achieved i would say the dream although some might say well, my dream is not to live on a ship and you know read and write and 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 teach all the time. But the point is, that was doctor, that was your dream, and you've achieved it. So maybe you could talk about that. Assume, let's assume the audience is some context on your on your life journey. How were you able to to inflect your life to ultimately this or or this destination of like? literally living your dream. I mean, it's like, if you think of Maslow's hierarchy as like five levels, you've sort of, you spend basically most of your waking time and energy in that fifth level. And it's like the lower four you've essentially delegated to others. So, so how did you pull that off?
1: Well, I did read Personality and Motivation by Maslow and I've, I've devoured, you know, anything to do with maximizing human awareness of potential has been on my agenda. But in 1982 October, late October. I went to a Walden's bookstore, and there was a chain called Walden. Well, right back I when there was such a it, thing, right? Yeah, you know, Thoreau from David Thoreau, possibly. But um, this book, I was walking through there, and I found this book called "The Time Trap" by Alec Mackenzie. And I. Picked it up and browsed it, and I went. That's the you know how you pick a book, and you just go. That's that's where I'm at now. I, that's the book. And I picked up this book, and I devoured that book, and dog-eared the book, and marked in the book, and summarized it, and summarized it into a six-step process. Maybe I can share that. I don't know if I did. I don't think I did that last time, but I'd like to share that. No, I, I don't remember it. So
0: please do if if it fits.
1: This is this is gold. To entrepreneurs. I've shared it with governments, I've shared it with corporations, I've shared it. It's it's, brilliant, it's it's gold. So what I did is I took a piece of paper, a series of pieces of paper, and I put five lines on it, made six equal space columns. And I hope that everybody will do this because I'm certain it will be a value. What what was the what was the book again? The time trap, you said? The time trap by Alec McKenzie. Okay. Now, there's another version of it, but I like the original version myself. Now, in the first column on the left, you write down every single thing you're doing in a day. And not just one day, but over a three-month period, you're scanning in your mind and you're thinking, how do I spend my day? What's the truth about how I'm spending my day? What's the fact? If I had a drone looking over me, regardless of what I said, what would the drone see? What's the fact of what you're doing in a day from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed and to really, truly introspect and reflect on what are you doing? Because it's easy to say, I want to do this, and but it's, it's really takes, you know, you can walk on coals and you can bungee jump to show your courage. But the courage to be true to yourself is more courageous than jumping off, off bungee jumps. So really look honestly at what you're doing with your day. When I did that, as I did that list, which was extensive, I made a list because I was doing a lot of stuff. And I I broke it down into personal and professional, all at work. And when I did, I intuitively was prompting, no wonder I'm not as productive as I could be because I'm doing a lot of low-priority stuff. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of stuff that I got to i have to i must i should i ought to i suppose to i need to instead of what i really love to do the tyranny of the urgent as they say yes well we subordinate to outer authorities instead of give ourselves permission to be the authority in many cases so i i I made that list and as i was doing it i was already already realizing i was majoring in minors and minoring in majors it was already starting to surface The second column was how much productivity, what is the dollar value that those actions produce, which meant that I am caring enough about other people in humanity to meet their needs with my skills and services enough where they would pay for it. Because mm-hmm. if you're not doing something meaningful, I don't really believe the person can have complete fulfillment unless they're also doing some sort of service for people. That's just my observation. So I asked, how much is this producing per hour? What is the real true productive economic return of that? Not that money is the only measurement, but it is a way of measuring sustainable fair exchange. So I wrote that down and boy, was I blown away by that one because I realized that even though I spent 10 years of going to school for a particular expertise, the actual expertise wasn't producing the greatest amount per dollar of of per hour. The most productive thing that I was doing was going out and sharing uh, my mission as a message for people to engage them in potentially participating in what I was doing as, as a speaker, which was like, Oh, I could produce uh, fifteen dollars to $18,000 an hour doing that. And if I'm in my cubicle as a clinician, I might make fifteen dollars to $1,800 an hour instead of fifteen dollars to $18,000 an hour. And here I was trained for 10 years to do this clinical thing, but it wasn't the most productive thing as far as serving people. Leveraging myself through speaking was more leverageable, more, more valuable. But I didn't want to face that. It was, it was awkward to face that. But I made a list of everything that I did down to every little action step and what it produced. And there was a lot of zeros down there, a whole Mm -hmm. lot of zeros. I wasn't getting paid for. And when I realized that, I prioritized it on what produced the most, second most, third most, all the way down. I reprioritized that list when I got through. So that list was multiple pages, and I prioritized the whole list. And that was a real eye-opener to realize that, I'm doing stuff, not because it's most productive, but because it's what you're expected to do as a as a profession. So when I got through that list, I already knew that I needed to go in a certain direction with that if I was going to actually be the most productive and most meaningful thing in, in my career. Then I went to the third column. And the third column was how much meaning on a 1 to 10 scale does it bring? another me- reason mean me- meaning you said m e a n how okay. meaningful how inspiring and meaningful is this if i can't wait to get up and do it and i it's the most inspiring thing i can do that's a 10 you know as, if if you're as buffett says if you're not tap dancing to work you haven't found what you really love to do right right so i made a list of from all the way to the top down to the bottom from 1s to 10s on that list, what is it I can't? What do I spontaneously do? What Nobody has to extrinsically motivate me to do. That's a ten, and anything that needs a little push and a little reminding, those are down below. But I made a list and I reprioritized that list from ten down to ones, and there were quite a few ones, but there was a few tens. Then I looked at what was most productive and most meaningful because mm. I want to do something that serves humanity. But at the same time, I want to do something that I can't wait to do so I can have my vocation, my vacation. So huh. I looked at them and I, I integrated the ones that produced the most, most meaning and most productivity dollar wise. And it luckily had a lot of overlap. There were some that were the same. So I was really blessed when I got that list and I looked at that. I go, these are the things that are most productive, but these are the things I can't wait to do. So. I reprioritized those and looked at that and cross-referenced those. In the next column, number four, I, um, I identified to the best of my ability, extrapolated, what would it cost per hour for delegating that action? And that wasn't just the salaries, that was the equipment, that was the parking, that was the promotion, that was the bonuses that was the training I tried to get as nitpicky as anal as I could about what the cost the true cost of having somebody do that and I don't mean just somebody who's average but somebody knows more about it than me that is absolutely highest on their value list to do that because if they're not inspired to do it spontaneously I'm going to have to micromanage them and push them and all this other stuff I don't want to do that I want to be free to do what I'm inspired to do that produces the most So I went through there and then I looked at the spreads between what, what produced the most per hour versus what cost. And I looked at the spreads and then I prioritized that list. So I knew what things to be delegating and to extract surplus labor value out of people and to give job opportunities. Cause I'm helping the economy, which anytime you help the economy and give job opportunities, you're helping your own, your own economy. In the next column, I looked at what was the actual time per day that would be applied. Because sometimes I did things every two weeks, and sometimes I did once a week, Once, and sometimes I do every single day for three hours. So I I looked at the time that was involved. And then the final column, I put down what is the final prioritization based on all the variables. I'm going to finalize Hmm. this prioritization what is the most productive most meaningful that would be most wise for me to to do and what is the thing that would is the most wise to delegate once i had that data and then i divided that entire list into 10 layers and put job descriptions in those layers for that job and that that job and then when i was hiring people i learned through trial and error to People never go to work for the sake of a company. They go to work to fulfill what they value most. And if they can feel that they're fulfilling their values, they're engaged. They're not, they're Theory x people, not Theory y people. They have to be extrinsically motivated instead of intrinsically called. They're living by duty, not design, in other words. So Mm -hmm. I made sure that when I hired somebody, I asked, how is doing this action going to help you fulfill what's most meaningful to you? If they couldn't answer that, I didn't. I didn't go by what they said. I I'd go by how quick they were congruent in their answers on those questions. And then I hired people to do it. So I was freed and I didn't have to push people, motivate people or manage people or micromanage people or you know control people. You know, Buffett's good at not having to control the CEOs of the companies that are subsidiaries because he's got quality people in there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And surrounding yourself with quality people, A people, not Z people, liberates you. So I went through a few trials and errors and got some people that didn't match and I had to do it again in a couple of cases. But every time I dissolved a layer, I lifted my energy level. I lifted my vision level. I expanded my space and time horizons. I freed myself to do what was more inspiring. I freed myself to do something more productive and I felt lighter and inspired and I couldn't wait to do it. And when you can't wait to go to work doing what you love to do, people can't wait to get that. So it was Peter Lynch that said something that really inspired me when in the 1990s. He said, after I've done my technical and my quantitative analysis on what stocks to select, right? He was a great selector for Fidelity. He said, once I've narrowed it down, I actually go to location to the flagship center where the main headquarters of the company is, And I go and walk around and meet with the people from the company and I'm looking for six things. I'm looking for people who are grateful for their job, love what they're doing, inspired by the vision, enthusiastically, energetically working, certain about their skill and present when you're with them. If he sees that, he is certain that that company is going to appreciate in value when he sees that as a general scheme. So I maximize those basic things gratitude for what I was doing, love what I was doing, inspired by my vision, enthusiastically working, you know, certain about my skill, because now I'm getting to master my skill and find that one thing, as Gary Keller says, that gives you the competitive advantage, comparative advantage, and I'm present because I am don't get distracted by low-priority things. I'm present. I'm at the top of the, the heap, And I start doing that at 27, and I was in a 970-square-foot little clinical office, with one staff member. And 18 months later, I had five doctors, 12 staff members and made 10 times more net income doing only the highest priority things. And I never turned back. And I, I said no to anything else since then. I learned to give myself permission to do what I really love on a daily basis and delegate the rest away. Dedicate to what's highest in priority, delegate anything less. So
0: do me a quick favor. Um, Peter Lynch, for anybody that didn't catch the reference, was the manager of the Magellan Fund for Fidelity, yes. which I don't re- I don't remember the exact statistic, but I mean it's arguably or certainly one of the best performing uh, funds over the long arc of yeah, I think he was he did that for forty years, and he was a kind of a a, a value investor, like value was his his investing style, which is to say. He would he would find companies that he knew the market was undervalued. And I, I grew up, my dad was a value investor, money manager. So I actually was like a big I was a I was an eight-year-old who was probably a bigger fan of Peter Lynch than I was of like Jose Canseco or some famous athlete at the time. So uh you're speaking my language, but um he would find companies that he just knew were intrinsically being undervalued by the market, and he would just he would buy the stock and wait. And and he 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 would famously quip that. You know, he made most of his money, I think, after four or five years of owning a stock because he just he, he would say it's actually and this is such a good lesson for life. He would say the longer it takes for me to win, the more certain I I am that I'm going to win, because it means I was that much earlier than everyone else. Yes. And that that is a concept. Um, but, well, it, but deferred man.
1: gratification, deferred gratification is more profound. And what's interesting is the space and time horizons inside the human psyche spontaneously expand to the degree of the congruency with your highest value. So okay. the second you move by what's highest in your value, your space and time horizons grow. Seneca said you measure an individual by their most distant ends. How big is space and time is their innermost dominant thought? I've said for years, if you wanna make a difference in yourself, you need a vision as big as your your family. If you wanna make a difference in your family, you need a vision as big as your community. If you wanna make a difference in your community, you need a vision as big as your city. You wanna make number one in the city, need a vision as big as your state. You wanna be number one in the state, have a vision as big as the nation. You wanna be number one in the nation, have a global vision. If you wanna make a global difference, have an astronomical vision. I have a audio program called activating, awakening your astronomical vision. And that comes from congruency between what you're doing every day. It's not its not about comparing yourself to other people. It's about comparing your daily actions to your own highest values and how integral and congruent you are. That will automatically expand your space and time horizons and develop the wisdom of patience and long-term visions and thinking. And Peter was an example of that. and Munger and Buffett were all examples of that. And they're still smarter than half the guys that are flipping and trading.
0: So I was on a... I was on a podcast earlier today, uh, Enter the Lionheart, which for the audience, super cool podcast. Definitely go listen to my episode, but also listen to others too. Lawrence Dunnings, uh, the host, it re- really great conversation. But we were totally talking about this. Like this is kismet as far as I'm concerned. Um, this idea of that, that people tend to discount ideas in inverse proportion to their size. So they're like oh well that's because he said he said to me he said jeff i was i was researching you about online and i found this conversation where you were talking about uh setting a financial target that was a really really you know extraordinary figure that sort of seems beyond the the pale for you know how most people think and he said i was when i came onto the show i was wanting to feel out like is this guy just all about money 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 or is there a you know deeper philosophical you know grounding to his his goal setting and he said, "I figured it out. Why, you know, he had a sense of me of why I would set such an audacious goal, and and anyway, it. So w- we don't need to get into the reasoning there, unless unless it's relevant to this conversation. But what I will say is, we we ultimately uh, arrived at how, to, sort of a restatement, I think of what you just said, which is that like, because we were talking all about delayed gratification and how that, in many ways, is an atrophying muscle in the average citizen of today, right?" Um, and it, as you, as your as your gratification window collapses and you lose the ability to delay it what you end up missing out on is the is the ultimate end of infinitely expanding delay of gratification where like it's not you know it's sort of it's sort of quantum where or, or, or it's it's like calculus where it's not just the 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 slope it's the slope of the it's the rate of change of the slope right so it's not just how long can i delay gratification it's what is my trends in my conception of gratification itself, where it's, is it consistently delaying more and more and more or less and less and less? It's very unlikely that your, your notion of gratification timelines is, is static and fixed. And if it's anything other than expanding, it's likely contracting. And to the extent that it's contracting, you're losing your ability to experience the ultimate... yeah, the ultimate fulfillment that's within delay gratification is that ultimately you delay gratification into non-existence and realize that all it was ever about was the process.
1: You know, it, I, I have to share this because of what you just said. I love the brilliance of it. The bank at one time thought, hmm, how do we build a bank? I was a president of advisory board of a bank, so I got to find some of the stuff behind the scenes a bit. And the suburbs which forced people to get cars, which forced them to get a bank loan, to get a house, to get a bank loan, to go to a mall in a local bank to get a credit card. What it did is it it separated the pleasure and pain of buying. You know, it used to be when I was a child, you did a layaway. You put money away, and then later you got rewarded mm. and you got to buy it. So, you paid and you got a discount by waiting. And now you get a, 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 you know, you have to add interest because you paid later. But what happened is when you separate pain from pleasure, you awaken the amygdala, which is immediate gratification addiction zone. Mm-hmm. And when you put this, those two together, you get to the executive center and you start thinking of vision and longer term things. So the second we separate pain from pleasure and go to immediate gratification, the pleasure, and then later have to pay the pain, we devalue ourselves. And anytime we defer it and and actually pay the the get the pleasure later, but actually get to it because we paid it and got it paid. we integrate that. Wilhelm uh, want said, who's a father of experimental psychology said around 1895 that when you separate pain from pleasure and you get a a sequential contrast, you are devaluing yourself. But when you get a simultaneous contrast where you get to see the pleasure and the pain simultaneously, you value yourself. So when you pay for something, uh, where they used to have a statement when we grew up where payments due and services are rendered, when you pay for something right on the spot, You're cautious and you're buying things with foresight. You're not buying things with impulse. Impulse is extrinsically driven. People can sell you stuff. Foresight is intrinsically driven. So you're training yourself to be a leader intrinsically driven from within. When you do things simultaneously and put those two pain and pleasures together and you separate them, you actually make yourself become vulnerable to control from the outside People that listen to their physiology and their intuition and psychology who are guided from within become leaders. People who are ruled by sociology and theology are ruled from the outside. They become the followers. And it's the separation of space and time between pleasures and pain that differentiates those two. And so it is a calculus of an acceleration or deceleration or integration or differentiation. It is a calculus of time on those horizons
0: and you made me think of uh Ayn Rand's quote that civilization is the process of setting man free from men when you're talking about the distinction between that which we listen to in- intrinsically conformity. versus conformity, conformity to collective yeah. yeah um so actually as you were as you were talking i had sort of a potential um axiom pop into my mind that seems like a a reasonable extrapolation from what we're talking about that based on the longer and actually,'ll I'll share another insight based on what you said that the further out we we push our gratification horizon, the more we're able to experience the joy of process or progress in the meantime. Sure. And ultimately, ultimately, the endpoints, you know, starts to matter less and less to eventually not matter at all because if frankly, if our goals are big enough, we're certain to die before we reach them and 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 properly framed. That's actually a wonderful thing. But then that that brings the pleasure. The pleasure that we thought we were deferring when we first accepted the anti-limbic system. Into
1: the, whole process. System of, into the of, whole process. But it
0: brings it into the process. Yeah, we're now all pain and pleasure are happening simultaneously because every increment of progress is an increment of exertion, which is an increment of, ex- of pain, but it's also an increment of pleasure because it's an increment of progress.
1: If you're not pursuing challenges that inspire you, you're attracting challenges that don't. Yes. And so foresight pursuing a challenge that, one of the greatest fulfillments in life is finding a human challenge that is a, a great need in society and finding a way to find the one that inspires you to want to solve. And then pursue challenges that inspire you instead of having to keep attracting ones that don't. When you do, you have stress, not distress. And you integrate, not disintegrate. You have negentropy, not entropy. And you end up fulfilling it instead of empty. And so there's a power in doing that and deferring that. And that's something that we 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 overlook in our life. And people are there, you know, it's all about how quick it can go. I mean, look at the media, it's everything quick, 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 quick. But deferring to pleasure and getting present with both liberates people. And that's exactly what you just said. You just said it uh, magnificently.
0: So let me so let me ask you, like I said, I had sort of an axiom. Come to mind that I'm wondering if if this isn't if you would align with me around this here as as like a heuristic to say based on the notion that the more we delay gratification, you know, n plus one to the infinite, right? That that actually aligns, as you put it, the simultaneous contrast of pain and pleasure because now the pain is experienced in the moment, or sorry, the pleasure is experienced in the same moment as the pain because it's just a step on the way that we could we could go to a conclusion that says, in a sense, the more frustrated or impatient I feel around an unachieved goal, the less important that goal likely is. Yes. Hey there, real quick. I just wanted to let you know, I have been concentrating a lot lately on providing tons of value to my text message community. This could be random thoughts this could be letting you be the first to know about an event i'm planning or a special i'm running or a free training i'm hosting anyway just shoot me a text to get subscribed the number is 702-996-3926
1: thanks so much let's get back to the podcast this is why i don't promote success which is interesting because people immediately go what because success implies you have a small vision yeah and that you're done And it's a depurposing factor. I got so successful, I stopped doing what got me there. Keo, that used to run Coca-Cola company, says I'm leery of people who think they're successful. So when people ask me, oh, Dr. Demartini, how did you become successful? I said, I don't consider myself successful. I consider myself a man on a mission. And I have moments where I'm grateful for the milestones that I measure in the metrics. I'm grateful. But I don't think of it as successful. I I got to show the story. 1983. I'm speaking at the Marriott Marquis in New York City, and there's about 5,000 people, and there's six speakers all going to do a 20-minute little gig, in a row on the most important, best of the best ideas you have for, you know, growing your life kind of thing. And there's a guy standing in front of me. I'm not going to give his name, but is, there's a guy standing, and he said and he turned around behind to look back at me. And he says i've been waiting my whole life since i was four years old my dad used to speak on this thing i finally arrived i have finally become successful and i was thinking hmm. this is his end point and he was only 30. this is his endpoint. this is his goal i've succeeded and in my mind in the back of my mind even though i didn't say anything to him i thought this is just one of ten thousand speaking engagements that i envision This is the beginning. It was his end. And he got up on stage, and because of that, there was anxiety because everything was based on this idea, I have to succeed, I can't fail. And so, success, the addiction to success makes the fear of failure. And so, you know, the fear of loss of that which you strive for becomes the same as the fear of gaining what you're the opposite. So, these are the polarities that people get trapped in. And so, I, I didn't see it as success. I saw it as another opportunity to keep mastering my skill. And I didn't it wasn't even a focus on whether I did well or didn't well or whatever. I was just I was so grateful to have the opportunity to share what I just researched and I wanted to share it with people. I was focused on that. His career I just petered out. I'm still going. <laughs> yeah. And well, I could I- tell I could tell the difference between immediate gratification and thinking you're successful in arriving as if it's done, I've now gotten to it. And the idea that I'm doing something I love to do and I can't wait to get up and do it again. So, I, I go a lot to the origin of words and I know
0: I know that you do too because I know that I, I heard your story on our last um, conversation about how you, you taught yourself to read and speak, I think it was 30 words a day in your in your dictionary. Um. But that word success, it's always its always bugged me too, especially because I'm in the presumably sort of success evangelism business, right? Like people, I think people would categorize me. In fact, this come this happens to me. like, Oh, you're the guy on YouTube that takes me out and make a million dollars or become an entrepreneur and become successful. So I go to that word a lot because it, it bugs me too. The word success means that which comes after. success like your succession plan or your successor. So the idea of reaching success is literally an oxymoron. Yes. Because success at whatever point you reach, the, the successive point is still to come. Next. Exactly. Like uh oh, I'm I'm
1: glad we're we're getting into hey, this. Hey, you describe the calculus. When you describe the calculus, as you get to a point where you're really truly inspired, time dissolves. <laughs>
0: you're yeah. present. So your so I thought I thought a lot. Um, and and as happened last time, our time flies by. We're literally two-thirds of the way through this conversation already. Um, I thought a lot, uh, knowing that you were coming back on the show, like what do I want to stack on top of our last conversation? Right. And I felt like or what I was what I what was what I was called to, I, I won't say that it was I I thought it up. It was more of like a um you know, a presented intention for me, sort of almost metaphysically. Like, I've been really, really meditating a lot uh, in my teaching and my study around uh, being, in my mind, I have this term of like being through doing. That ultimately there is this, you know, to go back to Maslow, this sort of like net aim of life to to actualize the self to the ultimate uh, inward and ultimately outward projected embodiment of that which is authentically us. And then honestly, Anything other than that equal is going to end in regret and some sense of a wasted opportunity. So like, it's a pretty big deal. Um, But at the same time, you get into that sort of language with a lot of people, um, especially in in the world today because of these, these, you know, dopaminergic addictions and the gratification, you know, collapse and all the stuff we're talking about. People are like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I don't have time for all that woo woo beingness mumbo jumbo, oh, I ain't, got t- no, ain't nobody got time for ohm. So they're like, um, oh, tell me what to do. And so I've been working a lot on like a very pragmatic transformational methodology that is entirely focused around things to do rather than setting intentions around ways to be, even though we know that ultimately the way to be is the thing to do, so to speak. So I'm wondering... Do you have anything that's sort of like prescriptive maybe for the, the audience member who's listening to this going, okay, you have internet person, Jeff, you have lives on a boat, John, talking about whatever they're talking about. And I'm, I'm just sitting here trying to figure out what to do. So, so from the lens of doing as a proxy for the development of being, how would you sort of prescriptionalize the stuff that we're talking about for the average person who thinks at some degree that we both sound insane.
1: Well, what when when you said that, I had two things come to mind. I hope you don't mind me doing these two things. Please. I was sitting in in La Jolla, California many years ago, doing a seven-day program on self-mastery leadership. And Deepak Chopra and Brian Tracy were there. And afterwards we went to lunch. And there was a gentleman who was a famous guru attending also. He had like 8 million followers, so he had pretty good outreach. But I watched him minimize himself to Deepak and to Brian. He knew both of them. And I watched him subordinate because of the productivity of these two individuals, because they were highly productive, even though he was a very successful guy himself in in those definitions, right? But I watched it that no matter what, we really can't separate the be, do, and haves. They're in, almost inseparable inside our, as long as we're incarnate in a form here, we got to, we, we have to acknowledge that there's a be and do and have. If you do nothing and you have nothing, people call you a nobody. If you do something and you have something, they call you somebody. I mean, it's sort of, there's an like inseparability to it. But I'm, I believe that practicality is crucial, but practicality becomes intrinsic when it is really a state of being. So there's a really yeah. inseparability to it because I don't I don't become who I am only because of what I do. It's it's a calling of what inspires me and then I do it simultaneously. But I tell people that if you can master the art of prioritizing your actions and the art of prioritizing your perceptions, you have sensory neurons, you got motor neurons and you have interneurons. If you can prioritize your actions, you're taking control of your upper and lower motor neurons. If you prioritize your perception, you're taking control over your ascending pathways and tracks of the brain, your sensory neurons, and the sensory pathways. And how do you take control of the sensory pathway? It's easy to understand prioritizing your daily actions, but you really need to know what priorities are. But prioritizing perception is how to take whatever happens in a day, how is it on the way, not in the way? Could people accumulate experiences that they thought were in the way? And then they weigh themselves down in their subconscious mind, right? And their amygdala and their hippocampus with all these valent judgments on it. And they weigh themselves down instead of asking, how did whatever happened to me today help me move one step closer to what I'm inspired to fulfill? And if you don't go to bed until you've answered that, until you get a tear of gratitude, there's the resistance in perception dissolves. And if you stick to priority, you get less resistance and perception because you've delegated most of your resistance. Now, mm-hmm. when you do that, you're in a state of gratitude. And the gratitude state is when you have the feeling of fulfillment of being what you want to be in life. So you really, inseparability of all three of these, they're really inseparable. But but prioritizing your actions and prioritizing your perceptions are two masterful action steps that any human being can begin today. So let's, Okay. Uh-
0: I, I feel like the first part of our conversation—you, you, you know—you—you you walked people or talked people through a a pretty a very pragmatic exercise for ultimately prioritizing actions. I mean that that uh, time trap exercise was perfect for that. Can you talk a little bit more about prioritizing perception? Because I think that there's a certain uh, a certain self determination element to that that is absent for a lot of people. We live in a world that is sort of operates based on the hijacking of our perception, i.e. the leveraging of our attention. And so I'm not sure a lot of people actually believe that perception is within their control to
1: prioritize. So can you talk a little more about that? Well, I've been doing that for years, I mean, decades. So I, I'm certain that that's doable because we get to do it every week with clients and stuff. <clears throat> but it's asking, the quality of your life is based on the quality of the questions you're asking. If you ask questions that bring unconscious information, conscious, you have a change in your perception. Because you're, it's the only reason you have a perception is because you're conscious. You filtered with a, a subjective confirmation bias and a subjective disconfirmation bias. You filtered reality through the thalamus. So, so if you ask the question, <coughs> how specifically is what this event has occurred? Let's say somebody says, "Look, I'm canceling my 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 work with you, and it's going to cost you some income." And you go, "Ah, darn it, that you know, da da good." How specifically is that? giving you an opportunity to move forward in your business? How is it helping you prioritize your system? How is it helping you more effectively communicate with clients? How is it helping you? Just keep asking, how is this doing it? Until you get so many wins out of that, that that doesn't distract you with an anxiety of any of those things happening. And you immediately, when you do that, you're not in the amygdala's response. You're in now a, a preemptive strike and you're now prepared and you've mitigated the risk and you use it to your advantage. And now you build momentum. It's incremental momentum that builds greatness. It's little things and taking little actions every single day and little perceptions on events that you think are terrible. How did it serve? Let me give you an interesting example, and it just popped in my head. I had this boy, 21 years old. He's a boy now. I'm 70. A lot. So uh, he's a young man, and he um, he was been told by his therapist by his counselors, by God knows how many people, that because his mother and father didn't want him, and because of he was in a an orphanage, and because he was a, a foster person, that's why his life is the way it is. And there was basically extrinsically determined his destiny by that. And and so somebody said, you need to talk to this John guy, this crazy John guy, right? Me. And so he ends up having this somebody paid for this consult to meet with me and i sat with him and i said so you want to run this story people want to run their victim story they want to run why things aren't working and i found that that doesn't produce anything it's just to just energy dissipated energy so i i said so you came from um uh parents gave you up and you came to the foster thing and said yeah i said you know how to get on on your phone and yeah you know how to get on the internet with it yeah get on the internet for a second I said, let's look up famous people that came from orphanages and were foster kids, and let's find out all the names, celebrities and famous people that started that way. And we found a list. There's over 700 of them that started that way. Sir Isaac Newton, right, as a, a good mm-hmm. example, right? He's born. Uh, his father dies when he's born on Christmas. His mother has to leave him and abandon him, and he's raised by this other guy in the apothecary area. But he comes to be Sir Isaac Newton, right? The great Principia and the great gravitational insights. But I made him go through that list. And then I said, You know who that is? He goes, No. And we then looked up that person. He goes, Wow, that's an amazing, famous person. And I said, Now go look at that person. And anyone he didn't know, we looked up. And I said, Buddy, you're in that category. You've been given the gift. Of being in that category with some of the greatest contributors of humanity in the planet. And they started out exactly like you. This is not a setback. This is an opportunity. And I made him reframe his perspective by asking a new set of questions and seeing it differently. And his catalytic, catalytic trajectory changed. He says, I'm special. I got a mission to do. I'm. Let's get on with it. From being a victim of history, he's now master of destiny, because I asked him a new set of questions and made him aware of what he was unconscious of. And that's what most people don't take the time to do. But that exercise on a daily basis, incrementally, will build enormous trajectory changes in people's lives. If they ask, how did whatever happened to me, how did it help me fulfill my mission, my highest values, what I feel my purpose and calling is on a daily basis, and then don't go to bed until that's answered and get a tear in the eye. And then you realize that you're grateful, you're accumulating gratitude. And when you accumulate gratitudes, you go into the forebrain and you start getting more vision and more opportunities in your life because you realize, what am I frightened of? There's nothing to be frightened of. I I can choose my destiny here. And so you'll see that everything's on the way, not in the way, and that takes the gravity out and the levity in, and that frees people up. And that's just a simple question on a daily basis, can start that.
0: Well, it's it's it strikes me that you know if you're if you're cursed with the kind of parents that aren't interested in raising you the best thing they could do for you is to give you up like what a what a blessing you yeah
1: know. yeah um, exactly i gotta i gotta show this other one. this lady wanted to pretend like she was a victim of her parents unwanting and everything else and then all of a sudden she she says to me i said so who took on that role nothing's missing in your life at the level of your authentic self nothing's missing at the level of your imposter self you always think things are missing you're too mm-hmm. proud or too humble to admit what you see in others inside you. And so you you have this emptiness inside. So I made her go and look. And then she realized her aunt took care of her. Her best friend's mom took care of her. They taught her new languages. And if her mom had been there, her mom had bipolar condition and was not really focused and wasn't really highly educated and didn't have a lot of income. And when she stopped and looked, she goes, my mom demonstrated love for me by letting me go. I hmm, said, that's yeah. right. I said, now you've reframed what's happened there. You're seeing things you were been unconscious of. Now you see it on the way. You don't see it in the way. And she says, I feel like I want to do something on behalf of my mom. Instead of bitching at my mom, I want to be enriching my life to honor my mom for having the courage and love to do that. Because very few moms could give up their child for a greater life. And she saw it differently. And that's what's possible. Every human being, they have the capacity to see it that way. So I,
0: you know, every episode, I'm always I'm always sort of fishing. Uh, I, it's not active in the moment. I try to just have it be an awareness. But I usually know it when it happens. And I think it just might have just happened of like, what's going to be the takeaway, right? It's like our, our, you know, when I knew you were coming back on the show, I, I went and kind of brushed up on our previous conversation. But without having done so, it's like, it, you know, every episode, I think I'm almost 300 episodes into my show now. I can usually remember one thing from every episode. The thing I really remembered from our previous conversation was that that notion that everybody is constantly living out their values all the time um the sort of axiological grounding of of our reality or our choices but then i i feel like today it what might end up being is this notion that especially for people who are not practiced in managing their own perception or even who are not bought into the idea that that's p- possible or necessarily like um you know able to do be done consistently we we manage our perception by the questions we ask ourselves like that i feel like is a mic drop and so you know i think about there's there's been two questions that were seeded to me by different mentors along the way that i have i have become habitual about asking even though i it's sort of automatic now one is to ask of any situation what can be great about this and the other is, exactly. and this one, and this one came from my therapist. And w- in fact, my wife and I have this uh, on our wall in our kitchen. How is this essential for my development? Perfect. And man, uh, when you talk about prioritizing actions, prioritizing perception, and to and and I would argue that probably it probably inflects both actions and perception. Just constantly oh. asking ourselves better questions. But here's here's the embedded premise in these types of questions. To go back to what we were saying. This notion of like a teleological long form design to our life that's intrinsic to the notion of delayed gratification and purpose and higher calling and all of this stuff that is sadly getting, you know, bludgeoned out of the average psyche today because of media and hyperstimulation and, you know, popular notions and memes that lodge in our brain and whatnot. Yep. But, but, and, and also the decay of faith. In our culture the notion of a creator and a created design but i i would i you know man it's like i said it's funny how things come full circle on the last uh at the last podcast i did the one i was talking about he asked me the question of like the number one thing that i observe that gets in the way of people achieving their goals and i and i immediately honed in on this this uh loss uh, or this atrophy of the delayed, delayed gratification muscle i actually think that the impulse to ask those questions that you're referencing depends on the idea that like for example if i'm going to ask why is this essential for my development it depends on the notion that my long form development is is a noble purpose-oriented thing it's not just this scramble for you know first survival then belonging
1: then gratification it's something more and something deeper and and I'm going to share that the highest value on the axiological axis, the, the highest value, Aristotle called the telos. Yeah. The end in mind. The ends. We called it the chief aim when Napoleon Hill did it. We called it the primary objective by Intellison and others. But that was the very core of Aristotle's idea of the Intelliqui and the teleology, that the study of teleology was a study of meaning and purpose. But guess what? Meaning was not the semiotic projection of some valent idea about what was happening in life. As Aristotle said, it was the golden mean between the excess and deficiency of perceptions and actions. So really extracting meaning out of our existential existence and getting to the essence of our being is the ability to ask the quality questions to neutralize the imperception, the perceptions that were imbalanced in our awareness. So when we think that there's success, oh my God, I'm going to be happy or good or whatever, What's the downside? Well, it depurposes you because you start to think you're arrived. And then if it, what's the, the benefit of failure? Well, it repurposes you and reprioritizes you again. Both of those are feedback systems, homeostatic feedback systems, like the licensing effect or the moral licensing effect, to keep you authentic, to keep you meaningful and purposeful. The mean between all pairs of opposites. The unity of opposites, as Zeno describes, and also Heraclitus. So this is the integration of the elements of our own being, in a sense. And so that's why asking quality questions liberates us from the bondage of all the things that distract us, that we call infatuations, or resentments or successes and failures and elations and depressions. All of the extrinsically delusioned perceptions that we haven't balanced in our mind, they weigh us down. They're gravitational. Even in the newest theory by Berlin on gravitational entropy, it's the pairs of opposites that are separated that are gravitationally holding us back, in our own metaphorical way, to levitate us to the more expanded awareness and potential as a human being on planet Earth.
0: So this, so you know, this sort of dialectics is, you know, essentially what you're referencing. This this uh, juxtaposition of of inter, of connected opposites. Let's talk about that for a second, because one of the things, one of my big like truly like moral crusades of late and i try not to be too much of a moral crusader because then i sound like a zealot and you know hard to reason with but i'm kind of on a moral crusade against the notion of happiness yes. and, and let me de- let me defend that because I'm right to ha- hear you. okay yeah i mean happiness is is the half of the glass that's full but it's not the whole glass and this no and to me I- anytime you you take half of something and try to try to align with it or be de- you know even be defined by it you neutralize the notion of authenticity. To be authentic is not to be happy. It's just to be full. It's to be full, right? And so right. you know, this is this is Jungian, right? Like like the shadow self, uh, the doppelganger self. Uh, but but really, moving past, I, I think this is like you know talking about axiology, right? To the extent that we value happiness, we 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 cut away our potential for for authenticity.
1: So or to the extent is, that we
0: prioritize it over over simply connected. like richness
1: of experience. Go ahead, please. This is exactly the essence that I teach in my programs. Because the pursuit of happiness, I wrote a little book called The Joy of Depression. I gave up happiness. It made me too sad. And it was basically the illusion, the pursuit of an immediate gratification of so-called happiness. And the saddest people I know are the people looking for fantasies. Yeah. And the people that are most embracing, the most stoic understanding of pneumonia, they have the most... Willingness to embrace the two sides of life simultaneously, as Juan once says. Those are the ones that have fulfillment. And that's the golden mean. That's the teleological. The teleological purpose is an expression of that state inside the human being. And, All and it correct inside me. intuitively. And correct me if I'm
0: wrong, but the Martini method, as I understand it. Um, is that is Yeah, it is. It's essentially a, just this, a, a sequence of questions that build and drive deeper into to truth and essence, in, in a nutshell, it. right?
1: You know, inside our body, that if we study the wisdom of the body by uh, K- Walter Cannon, he describes that inside the body, regardless of what goes on extrinsically to perturbate the body, our body has a homeostatic mechanism to try to right itself and to keep the internal milieu balanced. <laughs> and our mind does the same thing. We have a moral licensing effect. The second we go into pride, we automatically give ourselves permission to do something to shame, to put the pride and shame together to make our authentic self. And so, anytime our temperature goes up, we we you know we we sweat, and anytime it goes down, we get shivers. But the body is doing what it can, and the mind is doing what it can to go back to authenticity, and that is where our most meaningful, most fulfilling, fulfilling state comes from. And so, our our brain and body and physiology, psychology are doing everything they can to help us maximize that, but we ignore it. It was Paul Dirac, the Nobel Prize winner in his book on the Principles of Quantum Mechanics in 1947, who said, he said, it's not that we don't know so much, we know so much that it isn't so. We're bombarded by moral hypocrisies and the separations of opposites and the the dissociations of mind, and we're holding ourselves back from the magnificence that's always present to somebody who knows how to ask the right questions and see the meaning between the pairs of opposites. Okay,
0: Dr. Demartini, I promised you I was gonna let you go in time for your next appointment. And I noticed that we have reached that point. I just mentioned the Demartini method. Um, at, at the very least, I wanna give you a small window here to to direct the audience toward getting more more of your goodness. Um, would you send them to your personal website or, or wherever you'd like to send them? Go ahead, please.
1: Yeah, they can go to drdemartini.com and- and uh, go explore. That's okay. Enough.
0: Keep you busy. So, so okay. So I'm at, at risk of putting myself out there. I'm going to suggest rather than say, hey, this was a great conversation. Let's do it again. I'm going to propose to you, if you're open to it, a series of, you know, with, with, with reasonable time elapsed, consecutive appearances. I would love to consider you a regular because I suspect we can have this conversation as long as we choose to talk to each other.
1: Well, I uh, would love to do that. So it's just a matter of scheduling it. That would
0: yeah. Be I'll, 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 my people will talk to your people. How about that?
1: <laughs>
0: Great. Awesome. <laughs> well, Thank we'll, you, doctor. We'll
1: delegate, it. we'll delegate it so we can do what we love and that is communicate and
0: share. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Go uh, have, have a wonderful day and a wonderful next session. I appreciate your time. And to all you viewers and listeners out there, you're the best part of the show. Why I do it. See you next time. Take care. Hey, it's Jeff here. If you liked this episode of Unlock Your Potential, It would mean so much if you would like and share the episode on whatever platform you're listening or viewing on. And if you really like what we're doing here and you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving a review. There is so much work that goes into these episodes and you leaving a positive review lets us know that that work is reaching people and especially it helps us reach other people. Your review could be the reason that someone else decides to tune in check out this podcast and unlock their potential and ultimately level up the quality of their life. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for your support and for listening, especially if you like or share or leave a review. Thank you for helping us spread the word and thank you for unlocking your potential to go make the world and your world a better place.